As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And today we are going to be having an episode exploring the origins of the coronavirus and a a coronavirus in particular, the one you might remember, COVID-19. This is kind of slightly prompted actually by an interesting question we had uh, from from a listener. Um, John asked, um, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your comments on the origin of the pandemic. Was it a lab leak? If so, were politicians and public health officials disingenuous to initially, initially dismiss the theory so robustly? What are your thoughts on research on microorganisms, including so-called gain-of-function capacity? What are the moral considerations in governments developing these capabilities? Is transparency out of the question? And you know, we'll be we'll put our hands up here. It's not something that either of us had had put huge amounts of time into studying before, but we were kind of intrigued, weren't we, by by the question? And so we've been gone away and done some reading and done some research and kind of caught up on some of the really excellent investigative journalism that's been picking over this question of uh, of how, where did where did covid come from and um yeah we think it raises some really important questions actually yeah absolutely i mean i've found it a fascinating uh dive into the available um information going back and and sort of just re-understanding the sequence of events that happened in those amazing first weeks I mean, again, it's quite hard now. We're, we're we're recording this in October 23, looking back, trying to remember back to mm. just the turn of the year in uh, 2020, yeah, uh, and this news starting to leak out of of China of a of a new kind of pneumonia, and um and and it, it just we're now at a stage. It's fascinating to me that it's three years down the line, and new information is now becoming available. Uh, as you say, Tim, mainly out of, because of the work of investigative journalists, people have just been quietly scurrying away, um, reading emails, and, um, and 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 spending hours and hours uh, finding new information. But it certainly, I think, we both feel this does give a different perspective on the events which we rather took for granted back in those first few weeks. Yeah. Definitely. And we should say up front, um, obviously, neither of us, particularly me, are uh, virologists or epidemiologists. So we are not pretending to have any massive scientific insight 
that isn't kind of available for those who have access to the internet. Um, and, and we're not going to attempt to kind of come to a big conclusion, whether it was a, a lab leak or whether the virus um, kind of spilled over from from a, uh, from the wild, from from nature. Um, but we're just going. But we what we do think, actually, seeing how the debate has unfolded in the last three and a half years and some of the wider issues around this kind of field of research um, and science in the public eye and kind of geopolitics in the 21st century, that it raises a really important. So, um, yeah, we hope we kind of come on us over the next 30, 40 minutes on a bit of a journey talking about, um, yeah, the origins, the origins of the coronavirus. Yeah. And so it goes actually all the way back to the original uh, epidemic SARS mm. and, and, and MERS, these um, epidemics of a pneumonia-like infection, viral infection, which started in the uh, Southeast Asia and which then spread uh, from human to human and, and causing significant loss of life and so on. So there was a, the awareness that um, this group of viruses was potentially um, deadly and and could lead to a global pandemic. Yeah, so for those who who aren't familiar, SARS, sudden acute respiratory syndrome, um, that was a another coronavirus. So again, coronavirus is a type of virus. You know, so COVID nineteen is a type of coronavirus. So is the common cold. Um, there are thousands of these coronaviruses, both in humans and also in other animals. Um, SARS came from bats, I believe. Is that right? I think so. Um, they, they actually do. They did identify how it spilled over. Um, and But it was also in China in about 2003 and had a few other outbreaks later. Uh, MERS, which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that actually first originated in Saudi Arabia and was believed to spill over from camels. Um, uh, and that also was very deadly, but thankfully not as infectious. And so these two um, um, epidemics didn't didn't turn into pandemics, you know, crossing the whole globe. They were kind of localized and and thankfully fizzled out after a while. But it kind of showed, as you say, that there was a risk that coronaviruses that have been circulating in in other animals could at times uh, break over uh, the kind of species barrier and start spreading as a completely new virus among humans who would have no existing kind of protection for them. Yeah, it's interesting. I visited Hong Kong and China um, a, num- uh, a year really before the pandemic broke out on a, a scientific in- a visit. And um, I was struck by the extraordinary infection precautions that were going on in Hong Kong. Um, and that was all apparently because of SARS, the, um, mm. because SARS has had a very significant human impact in Hong Kong. Uh, a whole set of um, controls and inf- uh, cross-infection limits were were brought in and and have become embedded in a, in a way that was completely foreign to me as a as a Westerner. Mm. So so the memory of uh, SARS was very strong in Hong Kong, and I think this is part of the reason why Hong in that early phase of the pandemic, Hong Kong managed to control the spread of the yes. virus, the new virus extremely effectively because they'd had this history yeah so so um yeah so so this is kind of in the first couple of decades of the 21st century people are increasingly kind of identifying that there is a a huge risk 
of a of a global pandemic coming out of a an animal coronavirus and so there is increasing amounts of money now being spent doing research in this field to better understand these viruses how they circulate around and what might cause one to kind of jump the species barrier and become uh, a human virus um and that's kind of the background to what we're kind of talking about is that uh, there was one of many labs across the world, but they included there was a, a lab in Wuhan, the Chinese city where COVID was first discovered, called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was one of the global leaders in doing this research on coronaviruses, particularly coronaviruses that specialize that spread around in bats. And for some various reasons, bats are kind of a large, well-known reservoir of coronaviruses. You know, the average bat will have several of them circulating and then they constantly bump into each other inside a bat and different species and re-evolve and blend and merge in different ways. Yes, and, and what's going on in these communities of animals and viruses and so on is is an absolutely classic demonstration of Darwinian evolution. I mean, again, we don't want to get into at this point <laughs> about all the debates about Darwin evolution when it comes to human beings, but but the proof that the combination, if you remember what Darwinian evolution depends on, is spontaneous genetic mutation and then selection by uh, evolutionary fitness, by the ability to reproduce on into the next generation. And this is what's constantly happening. You're constantly happening, having genetic mutations within these viruses. And, and then the depending on whether or not that increases their ability to survive, their uh, genetic fitness, so-called, they will either spread or not spread, and uh, and and so Darwinian evolution is constantly happening in these populations. Yeah, and so a, a critical part of the story here is really the invention of um, kind of genetics uh, and the idea that we can, you know, not just um, you know look down a microscope and see, oh look, there's a there's a virus, and it, you know, that's what it looks like, but actually from the kind of 1980s, 1990s onwards, scientists start to have the ability to to begin to sequence the DNA of viruses, but also just begin to manipulate them. And over time, they kind of gain uh, uh, the ability to start uh, inserting other bits of genetic code and other things at the kind of uh, uh, molecular level to to change and, and almost start to create in the lab that kind of natural evolution and change uh, that is going on outside in the wild when when uh, viruses naturally evolve as they kind of go through different species and bump into each other. People are starting to gain that ability in the lab. And this event over time is it comes to be known as gain of function research. Yeah, and interestingly, it seems as though it's always been highly controversial within the scientific community. There have been a group of people, often I think slightly mavericks, who are saying... Mm. You know, this this is a really important scientific tool by playing around in the lab and seeing if we can make these viruses much more uh, pathogenic, much more able to transmit between to humans and between humans. And to we're learning uh, what is possible, what isn't possible. But we're also learning this will help us if with future natural epidemics by doing this kind of research. And of course, the counter argument is, is hang on a minute, you know, you are creating in a laboratory, a virus, which if it happened to get out, uh, could do devastating uh, effects in the world. And sadly, lab leaks are very well recognised. I mean, there've been lots of well documented cases where organisms which were supposed to be safely um, 
monitored and, and controlled within labs have got out and caused damage in the wild. So there are, there are various levels and the highest level of security is often within militaries because unfortunately you know, military uh, establishments are very interested in these kind of pathogenic viruses and you know research is going on in the UK and the US and other places but they are in military style at very high levels of biosecurity. So it's not surprising that gain of function uh, research is, is controversial and uh, in particular, that if you are going to do gain-of-function research, it should only be undertaken at laboratories that have the very highest level of military-grade security. Um, but in fact, there are several institutes in uh, in China that have been doing uh, this kind of stuff, including Wuhan. Is that right, Tim? That's right, yeah. So this is where it starts to get kind of slightly contentious because the WIV, the Wuhan lab we're talking about, the, the, the head of that lab has denied that it did gain of function research, but some of the journalists and others who've been digging into this have actually found evidence, including scientific papers and funding proposals that suggest that that's not completely true. So um, while this kind of um, experimentation with the kind of genetic code of viruses has been happening for a while, a big breakthrough kind of turning point was actually in 2011 when a Dutch researcher took the H5N1 bird flu. People might remember there was a, a brief fear that H5N1 bird flu would become a pandemic. But thankfully, it um, while it is quite dangerous for humans, it doesn't spread between human to human very easily. So it kind of, again, fizzled out. But in 2011, this Dutch researcher, what he did is he he um he was he was doing some gain of function research in H5N1. And, and what he did is he forced this virus to go be, to be infect um, a community of ferrets he had in the lab and evolve and then take that virus and go make it go back through ferrets again and again and he did this 10 times and after 10 rounds these 10 rounds of evolution he had made h5n1 become airborne and suddenly if this bird flu h5n1 virus is airborne that probably would have been another covid level pandemic because it is it is very dangerous to human beings um, and infectious and so what he has done is effectively create an, a virus that didn't exist in the wild um, and turn it into a kind of huge bio threat to humans. And, you know, thankfully, nothing happened. It's just sitting in a test tube in a freezer somewhere in a Dutch lab. But after this, it kind of raises this huge level of um, controversy within the community about is gain of function, you know, is this kind of meddling with viruses to make them more dangerous for humans really worth it? You know, because the argument goes, well, we'll... By doing this, we can see what might happen in the wild and we might be able to kind of get ahead of the curve in developing vaccines. But we're actually, um, all, the, the counter argument is, well, what is, the, what is the point of making viruses? That all it takes is for one molecule of this to slip out because and infect one of your workers who then goes home and gives it to his family and suddenly you've got, you know, a COVID level event. Um, so is it true then that the US pulled funding on any gain of function well this is where this is where so. it comes in with with wuhan so what we do know is that the the wuhan lab was definitely in the process of collecting bat coronaviruses um which uh mostly from caves in southern china where lots of different bat kind of populations live and they're known to be kind of reservoirs of virus and they were bringing them up hundreds of miles north into wuhan uh, and what it turns out is that they were doing gain of function research so in 2015 they published research where they had blended one of these bat coronaviruses with a separate mouse coronavirus. And then they'd shown that this virus could replicate in a test tube in some artificially grown human airway cells. 
So again, that's kind of replicating the function of what would happen if a human being breathed it in. And they were basically able to show that this new kind of hybrid virus, chimeric they're called viruses, would have been able to spread in human airway cells. And the staggering thing about this research is that it was actually partly funded by the US government. So the, the US National Institutes of Health, which is their kind of big science funding body, that had uh, had been interested in gain of function. And even though they had put a moratorium on funding while they were kind of like working out is gain of function too dangerous? Should it be shut down? Should it be better regulated? There was a kind of three-year pause on funding, but uh, the the American Chinese team collaboration that was doing this research were able to kind of persuade the government that this didn't count as gain of function. And so they got um, hundreds of thousands of, of taxpayer dollars uh, to help help fund this. And you know, yeah. it's important just to uh, think back to that era because, of course, this is like 2015 to 2019. And in mm. that era, scientific collaboration with China is seen as absolutely very much state of the art. You know, everybody wants to be seen to be friendly with Chinese scientists. Chinese scientists are coming to Western labs. We're collaborating together. You know, universities, Western universities are setting up branches in China. You know, the whole mood music is that close scientific collaboration with China is is positive and so it's not surprising that you know western scientists are actually quite positive about uh, working with uh, Chinese virologists and uh, and other health scientists mm. and and it's fair to say that there were some western scientists who were aware of what was going on in Wuhan and had, were concerned even long before COVID was a thing, you know, mostly because they weren't convinced that the Wuhan researchers had the requisite kind of biosecurity or experience to be dealing with creating such dangerous pathogens. So a lot of the Wuhan lab was only biosafety level two, um, which doesn't require things like PPE or double locked doors or controlled airflow or kind of ongoing medical surveillance of research to see if any of them get sick. Um, And so uh, there's an interesting quote here from a, a microbiologist, David Relman, who who spoke to the, the New Yorker magazine, and he said this, um, they were essentially playing Russian roulette with the virus that the world's expert had labelled poised for human emergence. It's a willingness to manipulate them without due concern. So this is fascinating, isn't it? This is what is emerging. None of this story gets told in public once the COVID no. pandemic uh, strikes a completely different narrative is now but nonetheless it turns out you know there were close collaborative links that concerns had been expressed you know various anxieties do they really know mm. what they're doing you know is this sensible and, and yet they're enthusiasts saying yeah this is the way forward and so on anyway and then the pandemic you know let's fast forward rapidly the pandemic yeah. comes um and immediately the questions come well where has this virus come from yeah. Um, you know, so we're now into early 2020 and questions are being asked, aren't they? That's right. And so so the first kind of report from China to the WHO, the World Health Organization, that they have this kind of novel pneumonia spreading quickly in Wuhan is is on, I think it's the last day of 2019, the 31st of December. And so as we go into January, there's this kind of desperate attempt to try and um, sequence the DNA of the virus, to try and trace, you know, contact tracing begins to try and figure out where it goes back to an earlier, an early kind of finger is pointed at this wild food market in the center of Wuhan, which a large number of the early cases had had traveled through or had bought something from. And, and this kind of 
helps nudge the conversation immediately towards what's called zoonosis or zoonotic explanation. So this is the idea that the the virus, uh, COVID-19 virus, uh, it kind of auto- automatically uh, evolved among uh, bats, but then potentially went through an intermediate species that we haven't yet identified, maybe pangolins, but probably not, and then infected humans. Uh, and so it was a completely kind of natural freak evolutionary occurrence. And so people are thinking, oh, maybe this wild food market, there were lots of animals pushed up against each other in small cages, breathing their viruses over each other. Maybe this would be a good place for a kind of natural zoonotic spillover event to take place. Um, But already conspiracy theories, quotes, about the origin of the virus and whether this was a deliberate uh, attempt by the Chinese government to um, engineer a virus that was going to decimate the west or uh, etc are circulating and so uh, a, a, an eminent group of scientists and doctors get together and they p- produce a statement uh, which is published online on february the 18th 2020 in the lancet and and this says we are public health scientists who've closely followed the emergence of the covid blah 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 we sign the statement in solidarity with all scientists and health professionals in china Uh, The rapid, open and transparent sharing of data is now being threatened by rumours and misinformation around its origins. We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Scientists from multiple countries have published and analysed genomes of the causative agent, and they overwhelmingly conclude that this coronavirus originated in wildlife. This is further supported by a letter from the presidents of U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, and by the scientific communities we represent. Conspiracy theories do nothing but create fear, rumours and prejudice that jeopardise our global collaboration, etc. We support the call from the Director General of the WHO to promote scientific evidence and unity over misinformation and conjecture. Yeah, and this is a really kind of frenetic time as as people in the West kind of see the freight train of COVID coming down the tracks. You know, they've seen this in- explosive growth in China and in, and in Asia. You know, this is the point where China is like, building entire brand new hospitals overnight to try and um, treat the, the astonishing numbers of patients. They're putting in these insane kind of draconian lockdowns. And we're starting to get this drip drip of cases here in the West. People fly back from China and we can see this is coming. And so there's this kind of ominous air of people are flailing about, you know, there are, and in this atmosphere, people start um, understandably kind of lashing out at China. And so, you know, you might recall there was a brief period where some kind of edgy internet types were calling COVID Kung Flu or or the Wuhan Wuhan flu. And, And there's this attempt to try and kind of smear China or Asian people in general for the virus, um, and and also a lot of the kind of right wing. Well, Donald Trump weighs theorists. in, doesn't he? I mean, yes. this is this is the ideal thing, you know. China, you know, make America great, and lo and behold, China are trying to our great kind of geopolitical enemy is 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 responsible <laughs> for this catastrophe. Yeah. And so there's a lot of kind of muttering on the internet about was this a deliberately engineered bioweapon for China to try and, um, you know, ignoring the fact that it was decimating its own people, but, you know, to try and uh, weaken Western resolve and, and uh, you know, and so there's this is kind of like frenzy of speculation. And into this, the kind of calm, measured scientist step with this open letter in the Lancet and say, you know, it's all conspiracy theory. Any suggestion that COVID 
had anything other than a completely natural evolutionary origin within in the wild is a is a smear a racist prejudice conspiracy theory and that has this effect of almost stamping out or at least sorting you into two tribes you either are with science and the decent human beings who believe it spilled over from the wild or you're a kind of racist uh, right-wing kind of nut job who thinks um, it was made in a lab that's right. Well, it's not just the Lancet paper. So what we now know is that some very eminent people, including uh, Jeremy Farrer, who is the head of the Wellcome Trust, and uh, other eminent people all get together and they have a uh, online conference call to discuss this. And uh, the idea of putting a high profile paper in Nature, which will squash all these conspiracy theories, is decided and so uh, a group of uh, five microbiologists specialists in the states uh, mainly one of them in uh, Edinburgh they get together and they write a paper which is published in Nature Medicine um, and which again I've got it here and just to quote um, the, the conclusion says the genomic features described here may explain in part the infectiousness and transmissibility of SARS-CoV-2, although the evidence shows that SARS-CoV-2 is not a purposefully manipulated virus, it is currently impossible to prove or disprove the other theories of its origin. However, since we've observed all these features, blah, 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 we do not believe that any type of laboratory-based scenario is plausible. And so this is then published in uh, Nature Medicine, uh, one very of the most profile. prestigious academic journals out there that's right and it turns out you know that it, this as as a journalist was recently wrote it's hard to overstate the influence of this single article accessed almost six million times cited by 5,900 other specialist papers and and so here is one of the world's leading uh, scientific journals putting out this paper saying there's no evidence at all uh, that it's, this has anything to do with the laboratory. And so, of course, what happens is that all uh, reputable journalists, all reputable um, scientists, they quote this paper. This is the standard. This is the standard reference uh, on, on the origins of the virus. However, what has now come to light by diligent investigative journalism is a whole lot of emails and comments, online comments between the authors of this paper. And, it, and it's really very striking because what they are saying between themselves confidentially uh, is very different. Um, mm. and, and, you know, there, there are some quotes. Actually, we don't know where, where, whether or not this thing came from, the, from a lab. It's, it could have done. But then one of the authors says, you know, the expletive deleted show that would happen if anyone serious accused the Chinese of even accidental my release. My feeling is we should say, given there is no evidence of a specifically engineered virus, we cannot possibly distinguish between natural evolution and escape. So we are content with describing it to natural processes. Another one says it's a very reasonable conclusion. I hate it when politics is injected into science. So later on in this um, discussion they're having online, um, one of the guys who's writing the paper says, uh, and who's basically leading the process, he says, um, it's well above my pay grade to call the shots on a final conclusion. 
So in other words, it seems that it's much more senior people uh, that are ultimately deciding what the conclusion of this paper is. And the scientists who are actually writing the paper were constrained in what their final conclusion was. And so there seems to be, you know, a, a remarkable difference between what they actually believe, what they're t talking about in private, and the impression they give in this very high profile, which is then quoted by everyone else. Hmm. And I think this what this, what this tells me is that us in the kind of non-scientific public, and particularly the media, is desperate for a kind of simple story to tell you know is it lab leak is it not was it genetically modified is it not and the scientists are painfully aware of that and and aware of the complications politically if they do kind of throw open the doors and reveal what we don't really know and you know there's a lot of strange coincidences here and it seems like a lab escape is possible but we don't really have the data to say you know and that's not the kind of messy story that the, the world want and so they are kind of they almost self-censor themselves into saying it definitely didn't come from a lab when, as you say, their own internal discussions reveal. I mean, one of them says, literally says here, um, uh, you know, the truth is never going to come out if lab escape is the truth. It would need to be irrefutable evidence. My position is that natural evolution is entirely plausible and we'll have to leave it at that. Lab passaging might also generate this mutation, but we have no evidence that that happened. Um, so they're basically saying, you know, it could be either. We can't know for sure if this virus's particular characteristics were the result of natural evolution or manipulation in the lab, but it's just not. It's you know, it's more than my job's worth to to drop the political bomb of saying that. So we'll we'll kind of self censor and steer ourselves into a, a, a version of the truth that is is cleaner and simpler to understand. Absolutely right, and I think it's pretty clear here. This is where so often what happens is you get these cosy behind the doors, behind closed doors, a cosy. Uh, consensus being drilled between politicians, senior scientists and journalists. And together they agree on what the line is going to be, which is going to be most effective. And the, and the most important thing is not to cause uh, unrest, not to cause concern in the general public. And that famous quote, uh, was it Queen Victoria said that she didn't mind what, what people did in in private, as long as they didn't do it in public and frighten the horses. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there's this attempt to kind of say the little people, the the unscientifically trained people, don't need to worry their little heads about the the complexities and the nuance and the subtleties here and our own internal disagreements. Let's present a united front for the good of science, you know, for the good of of, of the public. Um, shall we just quickly kind of finish off the timeline before we kind of start drawing conclusions and talking about? you know, what we as Christians might might do about this. So so partly as a result of the Lancet open letter, but partly because of this nature article that you've, we've been talking about, it basically has the effect of shutting down the conversation on the origins of COVID for about 12 months. So for the rest of 2020, we're all quite distracted, obviously, by battling the, the virus. Scientists are focused on getting vaccines. And apart from a few notable exceptions and, you know, the cranks on the the wilder west fringes of the social media everyone basically accepts this was a natural spillover event probably at the food market um for about a year until around january 2021 the first kind of uh critical probing stories start to come out there was a big piece in new york magazine an american publication which kind of uh found kind of exposed some of the the work that the wuhan Institute of Virology had been doing. We know that they were doing gain-of-function research on 
um, coronaviruses in bats. Um, and so one of the kind of critical things, I'll just go very skim very briefly, is an event in 2012 where six miners in southern China were digging bat guano out of a cave and all fell ill with a very unusual respiratory uh, virus. Um, three of them later died. Um, uh, and uh, a 2016 paper about this uh, managed to identify the virus, uh, genetically sequenced it, um, and found that it was, you know, they had been infected by this kind of novel bat coronavirus that they'd spent so much time with the with the bat feces. Um, uh, and this virus, called RATG13, is 96% genetically identical to COVID-19. Uh, and so this virus RATG13 was in the in the um, the, the files of of the WIV, and and in fact the the head of the WIV has admitted in an interview with Western journalists that the first thing she did when she was heard about the reports of this new kind of pneumonia style respiratory virus spreading around Wuhan was she got it she ordered it to be genetically sequenced as quick as possible and then she checked it against their own files to discover that it was 96 percent the same as this bat virus from uh, the mining incident and this is kind of the the closest people have to a kind of smoking gun but you can take it either way some people say look this clearly shows that they had this this bat virus is 96 percent the same as covid and what they clearly were doing is they must have done some gain of function research with it blended it with some other viruses did some other messing around and then it leaked out um however the other people say well look this shows that viruses almost identical to covid naturally evolved in bats without any human intervention so actually it's evidence that covid could come from from the natural world Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You are listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So, so one of the fascinating things in all this is that it's clear that the intelligence services, the US intelligence services, have been doing their own investigation and, mm. and, and collecting evidence and so on. And, and, and they are clearly, uh, there is concerns there that this could be uh, a lab leak and so on. I mean, the conclusion, I think, which is many other people have come to, is that it seems actually that it's, it's probable we will never know. It is simply yes. impossible to know 
whether or not where this virus came from, uh, whether and and unless in the future there is some kind of smoking gun, unless a researcher at that institute in Wuhan comes out and says, actually, this is what happened. I know I was there. Mm. And then they come and seek uh, safety in the West and, and, and so on. Unless something like that happens, uh, I think we will be left with this very unsatisfactory conclusion that the world will never know what the origin yeah. of the, the COVID pandemic was. But the story was far less cut and dried than it was presented, the way it was presented by very high, highly respected scientists, uh, this kind of scientific consensus was in fact very misleading. And we basically lost a year. And it's almost like, you know, when you're investigating a murder, that, you know, you have this golden period when it immediately happens. And that's the best time, you know, if, if we had been able as this global scientific community to get into the ground in Wuhan in January 2020 and start doing serious contact tracing and genetic evidence. And, and if the WIV had opened up all its epidemiological data to the world, then it's possible we might have been able to trace it back to a specific spillover and find the interim species between bats and humans and where they where it has happened. Or maybe we might be able to see, do you know what, this is this is must have you know, infected a, a Wuhan lab technician by accident when they were messing around in the lab and, and they brought it out and took it home. But ultimately, we lost that year because of the both the politics kind of tainting it and the consensus to try and shut down the conversation. And it's as you say, it's probably now absent a kind of defector from the WIV going public. We'll never know for sure which, which, which of the two stories is true. Yeah, but also just think about what the political implications would have been. Just suppose you know, all that had happened and the evidence was incontrovertible. This was a, a, a human-generated virus uh, or a human mistake. I mean, just think what the implications would be for China and for the world. You know, think of the reparations. Think of the, yeah. think of the legal trillions claims, of dollars the trillions claims. of dollars, the, the, the millions of lives lost, the implication for every person on the planet and it's all your fault and we're coming we're coming to get you yeah. uh I, I, it's not going to happen is it or at least you can see china why, won't allow that to happen you can see why the the potential uh, for you know it's the kind of thing that could destabilize the entire chinese yeah. communist party isn't it i mean it would it would have been seen as an Absolutely. as a it could have been an existential kind of risk, you know, it could have generated a revolution and overthrown their, their, you know, 70 years of power. And that is why, you know, we don't know if it was a lab leak. Um, but what we do know is that China is working hard to prevent us from knowing. So I, you know, whether the, whether that is because they fear it was a lab leak and want to cover it up or they know, but we do know that the Chinese Communist Party authorities in Beijing very quickly um, snapped, st stamped down, and any collab serious collaboration between Wuhan researchers and international bodies like the WHO, they have not shared data. They did not permit a WHO investigative team to have any real time in the lab. And so I don't know if they're trying to hide something or they just fear what they might find out, but they are very certain that if it is a lab leak, the world is not going to know. Well, what's also fascinating to me is that there are very strong hints in all this literature that we've been reading that the senior Western politicians also don't want to know. Huh. That, they, that they felt that actually to go down the scenario that we've just um, mooted would be so destabilising that it wouldn't be in their security interests hmm. in the, or in geopolitical military interests 
So actually, yeah. it's in everybody's interest that we all agree this was a natural event and that nobody's responsible. Move on here. There's nothing to see. Except, I mean, I understand that. I think that's probably right. That's the kind of realpolitik version. But the truth is, if this was a lab leak, imagine it happened in a Western country. Imagine it was an American lab that leaked out. And let's imagine there wasn't a cover up and that this was fully exposed. That would be devastating for America and would cause, you know, centuries long kind of ramifications in geopolitics. But it would also, I hope, cause a radical reform to gain of function research and biosecurity in virology labs, because we would say we cannot cannot allow this to happen again and mm, so therefore yeah. we either we either kill this research dead or we say that you can only do it if you go up to bsl4 like you're dealing with anthrax you know and it's all like triple sealed and you know military grade um security and all this stuff because we cannot risk it happening again but what's happened in this story is that because china won't let us know if it was a lab leak or not you know there for all we know the wuhan lab mm is doing the same thing right now, again, in 2023, at BSL-2, you know, with not much more security than you get in a dental surgery, is fiddling around and creating potentially the next deadly pathogen, because no one has taken any responsibility to say, if it was a lab leak, then clearly we have to completely change how we do this research. Okay, and so we just want to reiterate that the end of the story is we simply don't know. We are not making any accusations. No. We are, we don't know. And it's probably um, unknowable. And it, and it is probably unknowable. But we are left with this really uncomfortable feeling that very high-level science, which we all rely on, um, can so easily become perverted by political interests. And, you know, it, it, just to step back a bit, there's a, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that this is a, a recurrent theme in our discussions Mm. is about how the public profile of science and and how reliable it is and how much it it, it is a genuine source of truth and objectivity. Yes, because if you remember in previous episodes recently, we talked about um, that interesting piece from the climate scientist who was explaining how they had had to kind of almost self-censor and simplify their own work on climate change and wildfires so that it fitted the kind of expected narrative that the editor in the journal was looking for, which was a kind of simple moral tale about how human-caused climate change was the sole reason why wildfires were getting better. And he was getting saying, actually, worse. getting sorry, getting worse. And he was saying, actually, it, that is true, but there's other things involved. And then we also talked in our, in our episode about ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, about how the scientific research into that has become incredibly contested and politicized and um you know patient groups and advocates are kind of trying to co-opt the process to steer it in their preferred direction and it leaves people like me non-scientists wondering can we know any truth from research you know can i trust what i read and even in a peer-reviewed paper um and and i I have to say when i was reading the the reports around this debate about gain of function research you know this is taking place 2014 15 16 17 so before the pandemic kicks off taking place completely out of the public eye, taking place on, you know, international conferences and email lists between scientists and the regulators. And, and But really, this affects everyone. This affects me, you know, whether or not scientists are allowed to create, to artificially create viruses, which if they leaked out of the lab would be deadly and could kill tens of millions, is a really a decision that I feel can't be left to the scientists alone. Because mm, what do we I know agree. about researchers they they always want to push the push the envelope because they're excited by 
by new discoveries and there's that kind of hubristic sense that like trust me i'm a scientist i can do this i want to know what happens if you blend a bat and a mouse coronavirus and you tweak its furin cleavage site and give it this spike protein to latch onto the ace inhibitor and you know it's all very exciting for them but actually the, the decision of whether that is a safe thing or not to do can't just be the scientist decision alone no i totally agree with you i think these things are so important that there has to be democratic accountability and i think this kind of secret behind the doors uh, conversation which goes on you know we talked about it before but it's a kind of uh, they get behind closed doors and the politicians you know they have their interests they want to maintain political stability they don't want big public debates going on which is going to destabilize everything the scientists are thinking about their careers and their big grant proposals and their future nobel prizes and they want mm. the freedom to carry on and do the research uh, the commercial interests are all interested because potentially there are mega fortunes to be made, you know, if the science w- works, you know, so we've got shares in possible new commercial interests. And then uh, journalists are from elite um, journals become co-opted in this process. You know, we need you to be giving the right message. And we all agree behind closed doors what the right message is. And then off we go. You make you make sure that message gets communicated. And 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 to be honest, that that stinks, doesn't it? I mean, that is that is that's where we need this kind of investigative journalism. And, and I'm so grateful for the fact that there are people out there who've just been scurrying away, reading thousands of emails and you know, trans- having things translated from the Chinese. And, and, uh, and, and they've got the time and the resources and the energy to do this and then publish. There are options for them to then publish their findings into the, into the public domain. I mean, this is an incredibly valuable uh, function. And I, and I do think we as Christians need to recognise the importance of investigative journalism and, and the importance of finding the truth because we believe in truth. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's where, where we want to really land this episode, isn't it? Is about how do we as Christians um, looking at this kind of morass of uh, this maelstrom of competing opinions and culture wars and kind of scientific consensuses cooked up in behind closed doors trying to shut down lines of inquiry you know how do we develop a wise discernment you know because some people will say well look you know you can't trust the elites you know they're all trying to they're all kind of pull the wool over your eyes and therefore christians need to you know don't be a sheep you know and a lot of christians did go down that line and sadly you know i saw it happen during covid got sucked into the kind of morass of um, you know, 5G cell masks cause viruses and, you know, lockdowns don't it was work. It the culture or, wars, wasn't it, really? Yeah, Once yeah, this gets co-opted becomes, in the culture wars. Then and then the it just, you out. know, and there are Christians who kind of got radicalised by dipping their toe into COVID conspiracy theories and then now they're all in, you know, on, you know, Bill Gates is trying to kill us and, you know, microchips are the mark of the beast. And, and I think, you know, clearly that is, that's the opposite of Christians standing up for truth. That's kind of getting... Um, sucked into the culture war but the opposite the other end is if we uncritically swallow everything we get from kind of the elite mouthpieces of of western liberal democratic culture we would have effectively been told a, a just so story you know covid definitely didn't come from a lab it's impossible it's a racist conspiracy theory it's definitely a, a natural spillover event no conversation happened which we now know that's not true it might be a natural spillover event, but we do know that like there are significant questions to be asked and there is evidence that suggests it could have come from the lab 
you know so so where how do we tread this fine balance where we we believe in truth we're discernment but we don't um get sucked down to either end of the extreme so just standing back and giving a very broad picture of you one of the interesting things historically uh, and this is by no means an original thought and and that is that you can divide cultures by how they rate the importance of loyalty as against the importance of truth and that many many non-christian cultures um fundamentally would would value loyalty as a higher and more noble um uh, virtue than commitment to the truth and um and therefore you know if your tribe has if it's a question of do i put my tribe first or do i tell the truth uh, you must always put your tribe first. You put your family first. You put your nation first. You put your leaders first. Mm-hmm. And many, many cultures, that is the ultimate virtue. And interestingly, this is where Christianity at its at its core is very, very subversive because uh, the Christian faith, and you can trace it all the way back into the Old Testament, can't you? You've got to tell the truth. And the truth uh, and speaking truth to power mm-hmm. and standing up for truth and that you can trace that in the early church, and then it was sort of rediscovered in the Reformation. I mean, Luther said, "You know, here I stand; I can do no other." You know, that was I have to tell the truth about the Catholic Church, however uncomfortable it is, however much it's politically unacceptable. I will tell the truth, and so that Reformation value that says, in the end, it's more important to tell the truth, even if that has devastating consequences. Yeah. And you can see in lots of other cultures um, today that don't have that same Christian foundation, they don't have that same sense. You know, look at, at China, you know, clearly it's a totalitarian dictatorship, so telling the truth is always going to be difficult. But actually, there's lots of ordinary Chinese people who don't have a candle to to hold for the CCP, but they are it seems obvious to them that actually, even if it is true, if something is going to show their nation, their people, their tribe in a bad light, it should be suppressed. And they wouldn't see that as an act of corruption or an act of cowardice, but as the, the virtuous thing to do. And and as you say, it's in, in, in other cultures, we see that, you know, particularly in people talk about shame on cultures, parts of Africa and the Middle East, where, um, you know, the virtuous moral thing to do is to suppress truth and kind of individual expression in in the need to, to serve the needs of the of the many of the of the tribe um and so we shouldn't i think for us of those who are kind of steeped in the kind of western tradition we often it's so kind of in the water we don't really notice this because even non-christians as you say you know kind of western secular humanism probably holds a similar place on the spectrum of truth versus loyalty uh, and we don't really kind of appreciate actually that is culturally distinctive and and significant and very valuable you know and this is where i think uh christians do have common cause with with the classic liberal position you know that the most important thing is to is to try to find the truth and to tell the truth and that's why free press a free press that can just tell the truth and make sure that people know the truth has been recognized for hundreds of years as being a foundation of a democratic society. And that when you muzzle the press, you are striking to the, at the heart of, of, of democracy. And you know what's interesting, just briefly, is that 
I actually get asked this question all the time when I tell, when I meet new people. It, it most recently happened literally last week. I met someone for the first time and they asked me what I did. They were also a Christian and I was explaining, at, at, you know, my job as a journalist, you know, and I write stories about what's going on in the church. And, you know, her first question was, you know, well, how do you strike that balance between, you know, saying, you know, we want to write things that are true, but also if I write this true thing about a scandal that happened in a church or a bad thing that a Christian did, it's going to damage the witness of the church. It's going to lower people's opinion of God and of Jesus and of Christianity in the public mind, you know, and how do you, how do you manage that? And that is, you know, and we see that all the time. There's so many Christians, despite this heritage, despite this culture have fallen into the trap of thinking, gosh, I found out something terrible that happened within the church. God wants me not to expose that. God wants me to cover that up because if I don't, it will damage the witness of the church. It will make people think less of Christ and that can't be right. And and ultimately that is a kind of Christianized heresy of, you know, partisan loyalty to tribe over truth. And and I always, my response is always, yes, I understand, you know, in the context that he was talking about the sole survivor scandal that we've been talking about and Mike Bellavacci here in the UK, we mentioned in a previous episode, you know, it's been hugely destructive, not just to non-Christians, but the lots of Christians who became, who came to faith through that sole survivor ministry have had to question everything now that he has been exposed to, you know, acted in a kind of coercive and abusive way. But I don't believe that God wants us to cover this up. I don't believe that we serve God's purposes and his kingdom by choosing loyalty to tribe over truth. Absolutely. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there has been or there is a sea change in Christian culture um, that, that is increasingly recognising that because of the abuse scandals. You know, if you've gone back 30 years, I think there were many senior uh, Christians, very well educated and uh, mature, wise Christians who would have said, actually, it is better to keep it all quiet. Ultimately, that's more in the interest of the gospel. And I think we have learnt, most people have learnt painfully mm. that this is just wrong. This is, a, in the end, our commitment to truth, to transparency, to be honesty, to integrity must outweigh all these other concerns about the optics and about um, tribal loyalties and, and impressions given in the end. And, and, you know, this does ultimately come back to the nature of the God himself because... When, when a, God is a God of truth, who's, who, when he says something, it can be relied on. That is the essence of his nature. And the, the, for his people to become then dissembling, concealing, yeah. uh, twisting it, it, it is a nonsense. It cannot be right. And we've been going through Ephesians in our church recently, and there's a wonderful passage where Paul is talking about how, you know, once you were in darkness... But now you have become children of light. You know, all things that are in the dark will be brought into the light. So we have to live in the light. And, you know, I fundamentally, it's not just some out of some abstract love for truth that we do this. But actually, it's good for the church. You know, it might seem hard to believe right now when there's thousands of people angry at Soul Survivor and Mike Pilavachi for harming them and harming the gospel. But actually, in the long run, I do believe that people will heal faster and the church will become more like the church it's supposed to be if things that are in the darkness are brought into the light, you know, that short term crisis and optic PR problem doesn't pales into insignificance in comparison with actually the good that shining God's light on these dark things will have. Um, So yeah, that's the kind of 
core premise behind what I why I do what I do even because a lot of the time the stories I write are bad news stories you know they're about they're not just about what wonderful things the church is doing but they're also about the awful things the church is doing and the terrible mistakes that Christians have made and the failures so um it's something I think about quite a lot great okay well I'm afraid we're uh, we're agreed here we've had some, one of the comments we had is why don't you have more disagreements you know your problem in your podcast is I that you agree too again. much Right, I'm going to quickly leave and come back again to see if that fixes it. Hi. I'm back. Yeah, that's fixed it. Did you hear me all the way through or did I, I cut did. out? No, okay. I, I'm, you pretty so well got recorded, you okay. I, I'm pretty sure it's recorded. So I'm just right. going to close. We're finishing now. Yeah, we're finished now. Yeah. So basically we agree, Tim, but uh, you know, we've had this comment, haven't we? From, from one of the listeners that your problem is that you agree too much between us and <laughs> you need people who disagree with you. And so I think we've agreed together that uh, surprise surprise truth is important <laughs> investigative journalism is important <laughs> good science is important <laughs> yeah no one could have predicted that could they yeah, yeah amazing isn't it who would have yeah. thought it <laughs> or maybe just we're right on everything dad and that's why yeah, we well agree. of course that is the point i mean that's why we do the podcast because <laughs> since we are basically right on everything, everything. <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for coming to gather around the pulpit and listen to this week's uh, preach from Tim and John Wyatt. I hope it wasn't too um, predictable. Uh, we'll try and uh, disagree more on future podcasts. We actually have got some some ideas in the pipeline where we do actually have kind of different takes on issues. I think so. Hopefully, we'll be a bit more um, a bit more spiky and uh, contentious in future. And we've, we've got some plans to have some interesting guests come on as well to hear their perspectives so um thanks everyone for listening um i hope that was interesting we'll pop some links from some of the research and the excellent investigative journalism that we relied on in the podcast notes so if you want to find out a bit more we couldn't we could only really scratch the surface about this roiling debate about the origins of covid so if you want to find out more about that please do click through some of those links there's lots more to read on on dad's website johnwyatt.com particularly lots of material he produced during the pandemic around covid and the vaccines and how we can navigate that wisely as christians if you're not too traumatized to dig back through that recent history um and as always please do get in touch with us we love to hear your questions this whole episode was prompted by a really fascinating question out of the blue from a listener so thank you to john who sent that in but also if you have any other questions do get in touch with us you can email us molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk should stress that's premier the british way i've realized americans have an e on the end so p-r-e-m-i-e-r dot o-r-g dot u-k we'll be back with another episode next week but until then bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable 